to the Data Stack Show, where we talk with data engineers, data teams, data scientists, and the teams and people consuming data products. I'm Eric Dodds. And I'm Kostas Pardalis. Join us each week as we explore the world of data and meet the people shaping it. We have Daniel from Policy Genius on the show today. My burning question for Daniel is really his opinion on titles around data in leadership roles. So we've increasingly seen even C-suite level data titles, uh, which is really interesting. It hasn't been that way for a super long time. So I'm just interested in his opinion on that because he has such a wide purview over the different data functions. Costas, what interests you? What's the one question that you want to get an answer to? Yeah, I really want to learn more about how data and data analysts, scientists, data engineers, and this whole new organization interacts with products. I think it's a very good case because they are a B2C in the marketplace, which means that they have to deal with a lot of data. So I'm pretty sure that product and data analysts are working very close together and have quite a few questions around that that I'm really looking forward with the answer from Daniel. All right, let's talk with Daniel and get our answers. All right, welcome back to the Data Stack Show. Really excited to have Daniel from Policy Genius on the show. Daniel, thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, we're excited to chat. Before we get going, would just love to hear a little bit about your background and uh, what led you to Policy Genius and what you do there. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to go the reverse order of that question. And so I'm the head of data here at Policy Genius. I've been at Policy Genius for the past year. And I, I came on to help us build out and expand our, our data capability. So I'm the first head of data that we had. When I came on board, I started with, with two folks, and we've since built the team. At Policy Genius, the data team oversees data engineering, data analytics and analysis, and then data science and machine learning. So we have various roles from data engineers, data analysts, to uh, data scientists. So prior to that, I was at Plated, and I was VP of data science. Uh, Plated was the old Nokia company. And so it was you know, food and supply chain problems, which was super fascinating. And then even going further back before that, I worked in many different industries in their data leadership roles, including publishing, aerospace, automotive, healthcare a little bit. And so it's been interesting to work in a lot of different fields and get a lot of industry experience. My training is in statistics. So I did a, a master's at uh, Rochester Institute of Technology in statistics with a focus in machine learning. And before that, I was an industrial engineer and have a background in industrial engineering as well. Very cool. It's fascinating to hear about just guests on the show uh, who work in the data space, their various backgrounds. Well, quick question on that. What what types of things did you do in industrial engineering, just out of curiosity? Yeah, so just a little more context to that. I mean, data science didn't always exist. Uh, before there was data science, there was statistics. And statistics is one of those things that's embedded across many different professions and industries. My actually, my, actually my first degree, my bachelor's, is in operations management. And so early, early on in my career, I worked in operations management at both the manufacturing and distribution level. I, I then moved into industrial engineering because I was fascinated with solving and crafting systems to help people become more productive and efficient, as opposed to just um, directly managing folks. So naturally, when I moved into engineering, if anybody has ever gone to school for any type of engineering, uh, mechanical, industrial, et cetera, there's a lot of math. And so that's where I, I found my love for mathematics, statistics, and then eventually went back to school for my master's in statistics, and hence how I ended up in analytics, data science, et cetera. So yeah, that's, that's kind of the pathway and, and how I got there. 
I, I think all those things kind of led into each other. But yeah. That's very interesting, Daniel, uh, what you said about engineering disciplines in general. That's also my experience. I remember when I started studying electrical and computer engineering. And by the way, <laughs> my dream to do that is because I only cared about computers, right? And I remember that at some point I realized that almost half of the semester at the beginning were mainly math and physics. And I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> when's the fun stuff <laughs> is going to start? <laughs> but <laughs> that's when I was, uh, okay, I was still a teenager, right? After I finished and graduated, I really appreciated all the exposure to both disciplines, both physics and and mathematics. And it's one of the best things that at the end you go through because of uh, following an engineering discipline. So that's a very, uh, it's a great point what you talked about. I mean, that, that's super fascinating. And yeah, I mean, when you go through engineering, engineering, et cetera, absolutely right. Like when you take your, your first course on differential equations and whatnot, you're like, oh my God, like this is just insane or, or Calc 4 or Calc 3 or something like that. You're like, oh man, what is all this integration about? But yeah, I, I think what attracted me to analytics and data science in general is, and especially more on the applied side, it's just being able to take all that math and actually translate it into something you can see and touch and actually solves real problems. But that's where it becomes super fascinating. And luckily, you know, when I did all my degrees, I, I was working full time. So I was able to take directly what I was learning in school and apply it on the job, which was always, always fascinating to be, to be able to do that. Yeah, that's super interesting. You know, looking back, not too long ago, I was thinking about, you know, my coursework in college and I have a business degree in marketing, but I took a lot of statistics classes because I really enjoyed the sort of the idea of being able to answer questions with math, you know, and statistical significance. But I was thinking about my favorite classes in college. I think someone asked me that question and I said, it'd probably be a tie between statistics and consumer behavior. And then I realized, oh, I guess I, I work in in data, that makes a lot of sense. Like that's that's kind of interesting. So the application there of the math is really interesting. Well, getting back to Policy Genius, can you just give us a little overview of the business and, and the problem you solve? Yeah, absolutely, 100%. And definitely feel free uh, to go to our site and, and read more if you're listening. But uh, yeah, so we are an insurance marketplace. That is definitely the best way to describe us. And basically the way that our, our process and business works is we make money as an insurance broker. So if I can describe the process to you, we have mobile products on the insurance space, life insurance, uh, home and auto insurance. And really the way the process works is folks begin their journey online. And usually they come to us to compare options, compare prices. There are people that are generally curious um, about the, the, life, the life insurance or the home and auto insurance industry. And they're trying to get the best product they can. So they'll come to our site, they'll explore, they'll come through our product funnel. And then as they get through our product funnel, you know, we're giving them education, information, and collecting info about them. And then once they get to the end of that online funnel, we connect them with one of our live agents. So we have a series of live agents that we work with, that work with us. They work directly for us. They're licensed insurance brokers. And so they can, they can definitely partner with you to get you the best coverage possible as far as life insurance goes and home and auto insurance. And so they'll have those deep conversations with you. They'll help you, they'll collect some life insurance side, they'll collect some of your health information, et cetera. And then basically they'll compare rates, help you select a carrier. And then they manage the process of getting your information over to that carrier for underwriting, et cetera. So we, we do still have to go through carriers and whatnot to 
get a policy actually enforced. We don't actually put policies in force ourselves, uh, we, meaning we don't insure you. You know, one of our whatever carriers do, uh, we help facilitate that process. So it's the benefits of actually coming through us versus going directly to a carrier. If you go directly to a carrier, they're going to give you a quote. And then when you decide to move forward on that quote, they're going to put you through a process called underwriting. So in underwriting, what naturally happens is you could apply, like you could, if something comes back, you could your price could actually change. And then that's the policy that you have to choose from. And that's it uh, to go and force. What we're able to do is if we put you through to an insurance company and then your application comes back and it's your, your price is adjusted, we're able to compare that with other carriers before we actually choose to put your policy in force with that carrier. We do that in conjunction with you. So that's really the value that we're adding as a marketplace is we're consolidating all the carriers that you can choose from. We're providing you the education and the support to help you make the decisions that are best for you. Um, we're not biased by commissions, et cetera. And then we're also able to, we're also looking out for you to make sure that you get that best price possible so that you're not going at it alone or having to work through an individual carrier. So in general, that's that's the process and that's the, the business model. And again, we do on the life and home and auto side. We also look at ourselves as more than an insurance company. So we also look at ourselves as a financial services company. So we have products like uh, wills and trusts that just rolled out last year on the mobile app. And that allows you to just go on our, on our app and go through that process and get a will in place that covers you uh, and your family in the event that something happens to you. That is normally a very complicated and expensive process that folks have to work on with, with lawyers and legal counsel. And we've taken all that and productized it into an experience and it's legally binding. You know, we've consulted with numerous lawyers and law firms around the country based on states, et cetera, to provide that service. And so that's just one pinnacle of a, of a strategy of financial services that we've implemented since insurance. Got it. We ha- have so many questions to ask you and so many things I'm interested in, but let's start with, you know, one pattern we've seen on the show is that a lot of times our guests work in a context where there's sort of a traditional process and they're using technology to help reshape that process. You know, which it seems like is what Policy Genius is doing with the process and, and whole sort of customer experience of buying insurance. And would love to know from your perspective in terms of the data and the ways that that helps shape the experience. As head of data, how do you view the role of data in the process of reshaping that experience? And how do you use that to you know create and sort of inform the customer experience? Yeah, that's a that's a really great question. So some of it comes back to how we structure the data team to kind of answer your question. We're a product-focused company. So what that means is that we are continuously looking to improve our customer experience and translate that into, into gains for the company to help us grow and scale. So we have a series of roles from data engineers, data analysts, data scientists. They all kind of interact with the product, contribute to the product in, in different ways. So starting with data analysts, data analysts are embedded directly into our product teams or closely with product managers and engineers. And they kind of serve the product process and the customer experience in two ways. Number one, they participate in discovery through contributing with research. So if, you're, if you've ever worked on a product team, you know, Casas Gnosis has leading product to, for your company. You have designers, et cetera, who are helping with UI research, customer experience, and, and designing what the customer sees. A really good way that we think about data analysts is they're kind of like a designer, but on the quantitative side. So all of their research is quantitatively driven. They're looking for trends and patterns that we've seen through how our customers interact with our site, through where we're, we're losing them in product funnels. And they're taking those insights um, and questions 
And they're developing crafting research around that that helps influence the product experience that we're going to show customers as they come through, or even on the backend side, how agents kind of work through their process when we get customers on the phone. So that's, that's on the discovery piece. It's heavily driven by quantitative research. The second way an analyst contributes is on the delivery side. So whenever we, we, develop, we, we find a feature that we want to develop, we develop that feature. And then most of the time, I would say, you know, 90, 90% of the time, we're going to A-B test that feature and look for impact and how it affects customers, right? And we're, we're trying to learn. So we have a strong test and learn culture and process in which we want to try new things interact with our consumers and, and really understand if it's working for them uh, and if, if it's benefiting them, you know, in the experience. So we do controlled A-B tests. And our analysts help lead that process by structuring the test, helping out with the sample size and, and power calculations and helping ensure that we have it scoped and we're measuring for the right outcomes. So that's, that's one way we contribute to the product experience, what the customers see by, by leading that experiment process. The second way that we contribute to the customer experience and what folks end up seeing is on the data science side. So, you know, admittedly, it's, an, it's a little bit new and we're, you know, we just built a team last year. So we're still, we're still working on use cases, but we use machine learning to, to help influence and drive the product experience and process. That includes use cases around personalization, propensity modeling, routing, as well as anything we can do to augment the, the agent efficiency and customer experience in the physical process as well. So in a nutshell, <laughs> those are some of the things and the ways that we contribute to the customer experience. Oh, this is great, Daniel. I have a couple of questions, actually. And I'd like to start from what you described around how the analysts work together as part of the product team. And I think that's an amazing metaphor that you used there about them being like the designers. Can you help us to understand a little bit better how and at which points the analyst works together with the product team in evaluating the features? I mean, you, you talked about the A-B testing, but before you reach the A-B testing, I'm more interested in, let's say we create a new feature, okay? We need to measure some things that they are going to be used afterwards and through the A-B testing to figure out what works best. How does this work in your organization? Like who is responsible for that? Like who is responsible for what's going to be tracked and why? And how is this communicated with the analysts and what's what's the process there? Can you help us like understand a little bit better this? Yeah, uh, 100%. I know this quite well because when I got to policy this is like one of the first things I, I, that I worked on with the in collaboration with the product was really standard, standardizing this process. And so in, in my experience, when it comes down to it, if you think about accountability and whatnot, the entire product team is accountable for the results of that experiment. So that's the way we think about experiments from the get-go. That whole team is accountable for ensuring that we're, we're developing experiences that are beneficial to our customers and are value-added. Now, from there, through the, through the experimentation process, we have a couple of breakdowns as to, as to who does what. So usually PMs are going to initiate the um, experimentation process through hypothesis development and, and really defining what it is we're trying to test. And so they're just kind of the centralization point for that piece of the process, meaning that they take um, our company strategy, they take the insights from analysts and designers as well as the rest of the team to really define what it is we're building um, and why we're building it and what hypothesis we're trying to validate or invalidate. From there, there's a strong collaboration point that happens with our analysts. And what our analyst does is they're going to they're gonna go through the mathematical side of this, as well as align with our PMs on the primary metric that we're trying to drive impact to. 
And again, this happens much more like much more natural than maybe I'm describing it, just because these these folks are about it. They're working together on a regular basis. They're going through this, they're they're going through and sharing context on a regular basis. So it's less like check off the process box and more of these natural synergies occur. So there's alignment on that primary metric that happens usually between the PM and the analyst. And the primary and our analysts will come with recommendations on a regular basis as better indicators of success of that experiment, depending on what we're driving. Yep. And then from there, you know, it, it's a joint process kind of between engineering, getting the change finished, the PM kind of managing the rollout, and then the analyst doing the monitoring of the experiment when it's, when it's live. And then, for, and then kind of to wrap up the process, the analyst is keeping an eye, the analyst and PM are, are, are keeping an eye on the, on the new feature as it launches to make sure we're not seeing massive drops or anything, anything that would be, that would be detrimental to the experience. And then once we hit our sample size, our analysts will do that final analysis and provide the final result as to whether or not the test was successful. And one thing I forgot to mention early on the process, right before we launch anything, part of our process is PMs and analysts work together on that decision criteria. What's really important about any A-B testing process is based on the outcome of the experiment, what are you going to do and how are you going to action what happens? Mm-hmm. And so normally it's, you, normally it's pretty simple and pretty standard is if you see a significant increase, you you skip you roll you roll the experience. If you see no effect, you might iterate. And then oftentimes, if we see a detrimental effect to the customer experience, then it's a it's a kill feature or a potential iterate. But we align all that up front. That way, we have a blueprint for when the test actually finishes. So, I think my answer was probably a little more nuanced and complicated than maybe you thought. But the answer the answer to your question is the whole product team is accountable for the experience itself and then and the experience and the experiment itself. But then there's there's def- definitely places of centralization that occur within the process. Oh, that was great. That's exactly what I was looking for, to be honest. I'm very interested. I mean, I'm coming more from a B2B space. So we will also discuss about that because I have some questions to ask about it <laughs> based on your experience. So I'm super interested in how this looks in the B2C environment where you have actually a lot of data to work with. But before we go there, do these experiments ever fail? I mean, can you reach like a point where actually the output of the experiment is we cannot decide between A and B or you have to go back and see what went wrong with the experiment itself and not with the feature? Is this ever a case? Yeah. So, I mean, to answer that question, I think the best way to answer it is if you you never have experiments that fail, that means that you're not testing aggressive enough changes, right? The whole point of a test and learn process is you're trying to learn and fail fast. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, there are often times where tests are successful. There are times when tests are non-significant. And then there are times where tests just fail. And that happens in any company that I've worked at and experiment mm-hmm. with. And, and the idea is you're trying to push aggressive changes out there. You're trying to overhaul what the customer sees and, and really try to find something that's better. Rather than testing really small incremental things, you get there faster by taking bigger jumps. So that's the idea. And that, that's what we try to do. So we, we do see tests that are not significant or test that fail. And that's where that decision-making criteria really comes in because if you don't rely on that up front, you might get into this horse trading ambiguous world afterwards in which, okay, well, this wasn't significant. Should we roll it out or should we not roll it out? Usually there's discussions that happen beforehand and things that you want to line on based on what the feature is. And honestly, with some features, we're kind of testing for parity. Sometimes we are testing for a non-significant effect. If we roll out something that's aggressive, that's beneficial um, to our process or something like that, if it's not significant, sometimes that's a good outcome for us and we will roll that out. So it really depends on the nature of the test and what we're looking for. 
This is great. And the reason I ask you this question is because I have the feeling, and I also have the same feeling for a long time, to be honest, that, okay, A-B testing, for example, is a process where at the end we are going to say, okay, we are going to, with A or B, right? But what I think most people um, forget is that data cannot always give answers. And one of the, in my opinion, at least, like one of the responsibilities that the analyst has inside an organization and team, it's also to point out when we can trust and when we cannot trust this data. And Mm -hmm. based on that, reiterate and fix the problem or try again later or whatever, trying to figure out how to to solve that. So yeah, that was great. So question about B2B now. (laughs) I mean, B2C uh, has access to a lot of data, right? If things go well, you will probably be interacting with thousands of users. You have like thousands to millions of data points. And that's quite important when you uh, do statistics. In B2C, you have the opposite. You don't have that access to so much, to the same amount of data. Based on your experience, how do you see the techniques that you are using right now in Policy Genius work and what does not work in a B2B environment? What's your advice around that? Mm-hmm. How someone in a B2B environment should apply statistics and analytics to drive the product? Yeah, 100%. That's a great question. Before I answer that question, I'm going to jump back to my last my answer for a second. You pointed something out that I forgot to hit on. So talking about failed tests again for one brief sec, what also happens for us, like if we if we have an experiment that doesn't go as planned, uh, our analysts do what we call like secondary follow-up analysis. So you know, normally when you when you test something at an A-B test, you're testing like, like an aggregated metric. Well, if that if that metric doesn't turn out like we expect, our analysts will dive in and do much deeper analysis and modeling around that, truly understand how different consumers were were behaving when they experienced that feature. And we use those insights to help us drive the product experience or iteration going forward. So so that's just a little more nuance into some of what we do for failed experiments. But to answer your question about B2B, you know, it's it, it's a great question. And really when you think about B2B and lower traffic scenarios, um, you have to call back to your statistical training. So yes, in the B2C world, we're able to use tests that we're able to get sufficient power on. And even sometimes, you know, with, with our traffic, sometimes tests need a little bit of time to run. In the B2B world, you often have a different challenge where you just have smaller sample sizes. And so the challenge becomes, okay, well, I can't use just regular hypothesis tests. So you have to kind of adapt and use either tests that are more robust to lower samples, something like a Fisher's exact test or something of that nature, or just use, you have to use models that have a higher degree of power, right? And so that means that you're able to build a little more rigor into some smaller sample assumptions and then kind of use those to extrapolate out and then implement those changes. I mean, if you think about, you know, back in the day, the T-test itself was actually invented by Guinness. Um, And the reason why they invented it is so they could test batches of beer. Well, they didn't have thousands of batches of beer to test. They really had a couple of batches they could only do at a time. So the T-test was invented to help them with things like that. And the same principles apply with B2B, right? You don't always have thousands of reps. So you have to use tests that are applicable to the scenarios that you're in and that you're able to get high degrees of confidence in, or at least are directional enough for you to be able to make decisions and advance your business strategy. I think one thing to remember from a business strategy perspective is you know, we're not writing research papers here. So we're, we're trying to grow businesses and we're trying to advance that business culture. So being able to take some liberties with that or um, at least have something that's directional for you to react to is much better than just kind of flying blind or going by your gut. Yeah, no, this is so, so interesting to learn from you. 
Daniel, I want to step back from the the details of Policy Genius a little bit and talk about, as funny as it sounds, your job title. So head of data is a leadership role that sort of implies coverage of a lot of different areas of data. And this is a discussion we had earlier this week, actually just around, you know, it's the concept of leadership in data, you know, hasn't been around. I mean, to some extent it's been around, like you think about IT leadership, you know, sort of the history of technology and all of those sorts of things. But in roles like you have in terms of head of data that have a broad scope, we're seeing more and more of that. And so I'm just interested in your opinion, holding that title, you know, what does that look like for you, number one? And then because you work in the field, how do you think that that is changing in the industry? And how do you think that will look moving forward? Do you think we'll continue to see more and more of that? And, and what do those roles look like inside of companies? Yeah, that, that's a great, that's fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> simply the role of head of data can sometimes be a little bit ambiguous because you're like, oh, what does that actually mean? Because data is like a thing. <laughs> so yeah, but in, in terms of policy genius, and actually like most data roles I've held, the definition has has consisted and spanned over those three core areas that I mentioned earlier in this conversation, data engineering, data analytics and analysis, and then data science and machine learning. And I make those distinctions for purposes of scoping, scoping roles and helping to find people that are specialized in those fields and functions. So I think I think the way we define it at Policy Genius is very similar to other places I've been at, even if the role is called something com- kind of different, right? When I was at Plated, my, my title was VP of Data Science. So even though I was, my role is data science, I I still oversaw data engineering, data analytics, and then the data science itself. So really it's it's less around the title itself and more around the scope and breadth of the role. And there's real power and synergy to owning those three components, Mm. because really what you're doing is you're selling, you know, you're providing a service back to the company. And the idea is to make the most use of that service as possible. And by having those, those roles kind of under the same function and leader working together, you're able to develop efficiencies internally because they all kind of rely on each other. Data analysts work heavily with data engineers and they often need that data engineering support. And anybody I've ever talked to out in the industry and peer benchmarked with, they always tell you one of our biggest struggles is like getting the data structured in a fashion that we need. Mm. And so having, having a data engineering team outside of data with different priorities isn't always helpful. Yep. So those internal efficiencies are really what we strive for by kind of embedding these functions together and going forward. It's, it's, you know, it's hard to tell. I mean, like the way, the way that our team is structured is not the same across every company. Some companies that you look at, they have a more functional model where data science kind of reports into like a marketing leader or somebody like that, or a finance leader. And then data engineering maybe doesn't exist or is classified as engineering data analytics might be BI or something of that nature. So there is some, there is some decentralization that happens. And, and really what I think it's a factor of is the scope and size of your company, the presence sure. where it is globally. Yeah, those are kind of the, the factors and features to, to think about. And so what is the trend going to look like going forward? I, I think only time will tell. I do see specialized roles coming out, like you know people that are simply focused on AI and data science. But Again, I think it's a factor and feature of the type of business that you're running and the industry that you're in uh, that kind of defines what the scope of the role should be. I think there's power to having data centralized under one leader. It just helps provide a more cohesive and consistent vision, but there could be arguments for other cases as well. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, the I was thinking about this just 
sort of working on some ideas for blog posts. And it's interesting to see different models, right? You kind of have disaggregated teams that you mentioned, right? So data science is going to report up to, you know, marketing or other role, you know, and then maybe data engineering separate. Sometimes you have them combined. I would say that's probably less common, but becoming more common. But I was thinking about this concept and we'd be interested in your feedback on it. So there's this you see kind of a model many times of almost like a shared service center, you know, where data functions have internal customers. But one thing that I think is really interesting to think about, and it sounds like a dynamic that you've created at Policy Genius is data, the data function really being a strategic partner, not necessarily just a function that has internal customers, right? Well, we need this, or we need that, or we need analytics, or we need a model but more of saying, okay, we're trying to solve a problem. How can data help us do that, right? And so data becoming a strategic partner as opposed to just sort of a business function that serves other functions. Yeah, that's 100% right. Buckle your seatbelts, folks. Hot take coming. Yeah, like having a shared service center and having data folks basically be button pushers is not really an efficient use um, of their skills, nor does it motivate them. <laughs> so I, I, I'm familiar with the model you've talked about. I've seen that model implemented and I've even worked in organizations where that's implemented. I don't think it's as effective because what you're relying on, if you think about it, you're relying on your, you know, your, your business stakeholders whose responsibility is overseeing a department or function where they have specialty in, trying to come up and brainstorm a solution that they then pass off to have somebody implement. So what you end up with is basically a suboptimal solution in the sense of you didn't have people work on problems with their strengths at play. So by partnering with data folks and data science strategically and allowing them to identify opportunities and help contribute to solutions that provide paths forward, it's going to cause you to think differently and approach problems in a way that you probably would not have thought of before, you know, because you're not a data scientist or you're not a data analyst. And hence, vice versa. Uh, it also, also goes the reverse way. Data scientists are not marketers uh, often. Sometimes they are, but not always. And so they don't always think in terms of the business of, you know, of the marketing perspective or the end user perspective. And so having those collaboration points ultimately creates a better outcome than simply passing something off for people to implement. And so I kind of mentioned it a little bit at the beginning. You hit, a, hit it right on the head. We go with a model here. I mean, I've, I've preached this model in conferences and places around the world because it's a great model. I've used it many times. It's called structured embedding. And so what I mean by that is, yes, we have a centralized data team, but we don't just take requests and farm out resources. We actually embed our resources into different product teams and business functions. And the idea is that they're on the ground. They gain and learn the business context. And then they're able to contribute in ways that are more beneficial to the company than simply taking orders and executing work. Very interesting. Structured embedding. That's the first time uh, I've heard that term, but yeah, I totally agree. That's something that we see. We, we have the privilege of just talking with so many different companies. And I think that's a trend that we'll see increasing significantly in coming years. Yeah. Thanks for your perspective on that. Well, I know we're uh, closing in on on the hour here. So why don't we jump over to the technologies that you use in your data stack? And I, I'm really interested in your perspective on this because you have a wide purview over all of the different data functions. So we'd just love to know, uh, just kind of run us through the high level, you know, what do you use to sort of collect and process data, store it, and then the various ways you pipe it to all the different, you know, places and teams that need it. 
Yeah, definitely. Yep. No, no, no trade secrets here. I mean, we, we, on every job post we have, we, we put the technology that we work with, but at, at a high level, we're a GCP shop. So we work in Google cloud. That's our main like cloud provider. And then we have various amounts of tools that we work with to help us capture and move and process and transform data kind of events and, and whatnot that happen on the site. We have event streaming that happens with, you know, providers like segments. We then on, on the back end utilize Airflow to help us with our ETL between our databases. So pretty common stack that a lot of people see across data architecture and, and kind of ETL and, and processing and movie data. We also use Airflow to do our ELT processes internally in our, in our data warehouse. So everything kind of gets piped and centralized within our data warehouse. Our data warehouse is like the hub and kind of like the, the, the center of consolidation for everything that happens around the company. And then we're going to connect that to various, you know, reporting, BI, as well as modeling tools to help us help us uh, do more advanced and sophisticated things with that data, as well as make decisions. So yeah, I mean, in a super high nutshell, that's, that's really what the process is. Super simple. Yeah. yeah. Qu- question on the data side of things. Are there any sort of unique challenges you face with the type or structure of data that you deal with at Policy Genius? You know, so is there some sort of data format? And there may not be, we just like to ask because we find out mm-hmm. interesting things, but some sort of data format, you know, related to dealing with insurance information applications or other components like that, that's sort of presents a particular challenge or a unique requirement around moving the data or processing it? I would say... There, I don't think there's there's anything that jumps out at the top of my mind. I mean, underneath the hood, every now and then we have some JSON strings and whatnot to parse. So there are things like that we read too. But like as far as like the industry itself and like the types of things that happen, you know, our, our data is relatively structured, and so we don't really run into a scenario a lot where we have to work with a lot of unstructured data. There there are small pockets of use cases here and there, but for the most part, everything that's collected on the site. Etc. is is pretty well structured. So nothing really unique to the insurance space, nor nor us about some of our data structures. Yeah, very cool. So Daniel, last question before we conclude our conversation. Although I think we have many more questions to ask, maybe we should <laughs> arrange another episode with you. What's next? I mean, what fascinating projects you have internally and what you are really looking forward in terms of either technologies out there that you are going to use or, I don't know, even organizational changes. Share something <laughs> that excites you mm-hmm. about the future inside Policy Genius in terms of like the technologies and anything yeah. related to data. Well, I love, I love doing shows like this because it also gives me an opportunity to uh, recruit if people are out there listening. <laughs> we are, we're, we're, we're continuing to grow and scale the team. So we're, we're looking for data engineers, data analysts, data scientists. So, you know, we, we grew aggressively last year and we're, we're growing aggressively again this year. And it's, it's really a testament of the value that, that we brought the company and the value that, that people have seen and being able to use data uh, to help drive strategy and help drive product and help drive what the consumer sees. And so we want to do more and more of that and get better and faster at it. So that's really what's exciting is, you know, we're kind of year one into having the, the, the data team structured and, and having brought on many resources. And so year one is kind of like foundational. People are learning and trying to understand uh, the business and data, et cetera. And so now we're getting into that, that stage where we've had people here for a decent amount of time. 
and they're starting to think a little more creatively. They're starting to think a little more generatively. And they're starting to take bigger roles on their embedded product teams to help drive product strategy forward and provide those insights that are needed to help advance our business. So that's what's really exciting about what's coming up. So yeah, again, if you're out there, we're hiring. Go to our site, look at our roles, and please come through the process because there's a lot of exciting things on the horizon. But we're also, you know, so analytics is definitely a place we're always investing. You know, the faster we can decision and research and help drive product strategy, the better off we're going to be. Obviously, like we're trying to accelerate our machine learning velocity. It's something we dabbled in last year and definitely is something that we're continuing to dabble in this year and and expand and uh, accelerate. So yeah, those are some of the cool, exciting things that we're looking at from a a high-level perspective. That's amazing. To be honest, uh, Daniel, after our conversation, I would definitely consider applying for a job there and working with you. <laughs> Thank you so Come much. Down. Come on down. We're especially looking for data engineers. They're a little hard to find. So you know what you to send them through. <laughs> Thank you so much. And I personally really looking forward to chat again and learn more from you. Appreciate it. Thanks for being on the show, Daniel. And we'll catch up with you again, uh, maybe in another three or six months and have you back on the show to tell us what new things you're working on. Cool. Thanks. Well, that was a really interesting episode. I think my big takeaway was the concept of structured embedding. I have not heard that term before. I mean, I'm sure it's been around, but really fascinating to hear about sort of the strategic placement of people in the data function in various parts of the organization. I love it. And I think we're going to see more and more of that and, and hopefully hear more and more of that term. Costas, what was your big takeaway? Yeah, I agree with you. I think that as in the past, we were uh, hearing the motto that every company is a technology company. Like In the future, we will saying that every company is a data company. <laughs> and uh, as this happens, I think we will see very interesting restructuring and structures around how data works inside the organization and how this affects the structure of the organization, right? So that's super interesting. I really enjoyed chatting with Daniel mainly because he has a very unique and amazing overview around all the different functions that are related to data because of his role as a VP of data, right? So he has a very good understanding of data engineering, data science, data analytics, and how all these different things around data work together to provide value to the company and of course to the customers. Super interesting for me that data analytics can also work in B2B where it's the typical problem of, we always say we don't have enough data, so why do A-B testing? But there are solutions there from what we heard from uh, from Daniel. And to be honest, we have many, many more questions to ask him. <laughs> so hopefully we will have the opportunity again in the near future. I agree. All right, well, subscribe on your favorite network to get shows weekly, and we will catch you next time.